Welcome to episode 64 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, let's get after it this week. Tell me you've got something that you want to affirm and something that you want to deny. I do. I want to affirm, and this is a classic, I want to affirm bacon. Mm. We cooked up a pound of bacon for breakfast this morning and had just a glorious artery-clogging breakfast of eggs and bacon. So, did, you, did you guys rock a whole pound of bacon in a single We didn't sitting? eat the whole pound of bacon, but it was frozen, so we had to microwave it to thaw it to get the pieces off, so you had to cook the whole thing. We couldn't, we couldn't cook half of it. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so we've got bacon for days. It's going to be awesome. So speaking of bacon, this is like a funny pun that nobody gets until I say this. I've mentioned this on, I think, in our conversations before, but I'm elevating this to straight up affirmation. Go to Netflix and watch The Great British Baking Show. You will yes. not be disappointed. It's strangely alluring. It's, it's awesome. So go check that out. I'll have to do that. So hit me with what you're denying. So I forgot what I was denying. So I think I can deny <laughs> forgetting what I was denying because I don't remember. I was all I'll, excited about it too. And I don't remember what it was. I'll take that. I think that's fine this week because we're, we've just crusted, you know, into the holiday season. So this week in preparation for all that craziness, I'm really just been thinking about how I want to deny all holiday expectations or at least maybe unreasonable expectations Yes. And of course, there's nothing in scripture that demands that we need to celebrate Christmas. And there's things in Christmas that are obviously unhelpful, but there's also nothing that says we can't really make a good go out of joyfully celebrating the incarnation. So I want to let that kind of rule my centeredness this holiday season and not let anything else spoil the joy of just celebrating Christ straight up. So I'm just denying any kind of weird cultural expectation for the holidays. That is the most reformed thing that anyone will ever say about Christmas. And I love it. <laughs> I love everything about it. I'm down with that. Yes. So our topic tonight is our also topic. the most reformed thing ever. Yes. I love this. So we are talking about the logical orders of God's decree. Boom. Boom. So <laughs> I like how you just paused. You just let that settle. You were like, I know there's like so much gravity around this. Let it's this kind of breathe a, a second. Yeah. Pull over you your car, stop running, whatever you're doing, just yes. sit for a second. Yeah. So um, I want to start out before we even get into the topic. Uh, we haven't read nearly enough confessional statements lately. So I want to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven. And keep in mind, I know I say this like every time we go to the Shorter Catechism, but this was intended for children to memorize. So if you ever feel like you are uh, really, really smart, just go to the Westminster Catechism, which will probably confuse you a little bit. And remember that it was for children. So question seven says, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, and then question eight says, how doth God execute his decrees? And he says, God uh, answers, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So the reason that I wanted to frame that is because what we're talking about tonight 
is the decrees of God. And so when we think about like the decrees of a person, it's separate from that person. So if I decree something, I don't know why I'd be decreeing something if I was made king of some nation and I decreed something, that decree is not a part of my person. It's a separate thing that come, it can come from my person, but once it's come from my person, it's a separate thing. When we're talking about God because of divine simplicity, we have to remember that his decree is not only his eternal purpose, but his eternal purpose is is not distinct from his eternal being. It's right all on. one thing. So when we're talking about the decrees of God and especially their logical ordering, we have to make the distinction that we're talking about something in a notional way. And all that means is that we have to introduce sort of divisions and sequencing that isn't really there in order to get our head around what's going on. Right on. This is a bit like if we lived only in a two-dimensional world, we wouldn't even be able to understand or conceive of obviously something that was in a third dimension. So even if somebody just dropped like a cube in front of us and all we could see is 2D, we'd only see a square. Right. So we'd, we'd still have to speak in those terms. And I think that's what you're getting at, right? We're, we're going to be able to, we can think about these things, but we're recognizing it right from the top of the conversation that we want to affirm or speak about a logical order, but we're going to get into temporal sequencing just because that's the way our language has to be used to explain what we're talking about. Yeah. And even, even talking in terms of a logical order is still a notional difference. So let me read, um, this is out of Mike Horton's systematic theology, uh, the Christian faith. It's on page 315. It says, given God's simplicity, eternity, uh, eternity and omniscience, there is no before and after in his decision-making, but we sometimes speak of his decrees, plural in a sequential order, simply to refer to a logical rather than temporal succession of decisions. So all he's saying there is that we don't have a way to talk about all of these things happening at once, even though that's what actually happens. Right. But even though they're all happening at once, there's a logical, there has to be a logical sequencing that happens in order for this to make any sense. In other words, all of the decrees by God are eternal. All that God purposes is elevated above the temporal duration, so to speak. Yeah. And even, I mean, some theologians, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I think it was Dabney that pointed out that even to talk about decrees in a plural sense is already kind of making a distinction where there is no distinction. It's kind of wonky. Right. So God just decrees his purpose. And if you noticed in the, the catechism question, his decrees, plural, are his eternal purpose, singular. So there's interesting language shifts that happen between singular and plural because we're talking about one thing. But in order for us to make sense of it, we have to kind of talk about it like it was more than one thing. You just busted out some serious theological grammar. I know it's crazy. So l let me ask you a question. We're going to do a little Please, pop quiz. I wish you would. <laughs> I know you love when I do these little pop quizzes. I do love when you do this. I'm going to give you a scenario and I want you to tell me what the logical order of this sentence is. Okay. 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 If I say I am going to go to the store to buy some eggs in order to bake a cake. Right. What's the logical order of ideas in that sentence? So the goal is to bake the cake. But of course, right. before you can do that, you've got to get the eggs. And since you don't have any, you've got to go to the store to get them first. Okay. So what's the first thing in the logical order? Is get to the store. False. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is, this is why it's so hard is because when we talk about it, right? So the first thing in the logical order is make the cake. Is make the cake. Right. 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 So, so 
if I wasn't making the cake, there'd be no reason for me to get the eggs. And Listen, if I wasn't getting eggs. the eggs, right. Well, then you do always need eggs. But in this scenario, the only reason I'm going to the store is to get the eggs. And the only reason I need the eggs is to make the cake. Right. So the cake is the first thing in the logical order. And then the eggs and then the store. And if you look at it, that's actually 100% reversed from the temporal order of things. Exactly. Right. So the first thing you do in time is you go to the store and then you get the eggs and then you make the cake. But in terms of the logical dependencies, the logical ordering, the cake has to be the first thing. Right. So that's what we're talking about is we're not talking about the temporal sequence. We're talking about the logical sequence in God's decrees. And that's why in my defense... When I explained it back to you, I reversed it because I I was delineating that train, but I feel like it's more fun to say, go get in the car. It's true. It's so, it's so hard to talk about these things because we, we naturally sort of slide into thinking about things in the sequence of time because that's like our entire experience. So you really have to train yourself to sort of pull yourself back from that and you can't ever do it fully, but pull yourself back from it right. to abstract that. But just think about it this way. When's the last time you, I mean, sometimes it happens, I guess, but when's the last time you just ended up at the store randomly with no objective to buy something? It, it depends on whether you're asking me or my wife, but if that's, you're asking me, like true. probably never, but I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, all these things we're saying have a logical, but not a chronological relationship, but in order for us to reason intelligently about them we must have like a certain order of thought and that comes right. natural to us, the order of thought. But unfortunately order of thought is often tightly coupled with order of like chronological events. Right. Right. So there are two, um, two basic categories and then there's like a thousand permutations of these categories. And we're going to so talk about them all. We're going to talk, no, we're not going to get too bogged down in all the specifics. Um, and we're going to stick with the, the big broad categories. So usually there's like four elements to the, the two positions, but you could break each of those elements down into sub subcategories. And we'll, we'll right. maybe talk a little bit about what some of those possibilities are. All right. So bust but, out those big theological words. Yes. So the first category at first Logically, chronologically, the first in no particular logical or chronological order, <laughs> I suppose it's chronological. Um, we're going to milk this joke for all it's worth. <laughs> only, only we could milk a joke about time and grammar and theology. Like Nobody's finding this as funny as you and I are right now. I know. It's fine, though. We do this show for us. So um, the first of the big categories is called supralapsarianism. And supralapsarianism means that the decree to um, elect and reprobate a people comes prior to the decree to allow the fall. Right. Boom. Right. That was that was heavy. And supra, well, give us the uh, you're the word guy tonight. So give us the kind of meaning behind supra and lapsarian or lapsus. Well, supra, I'm sure, is a Latin term, but I don't actually know how it how it shakes out in terms of what supra means. I think that probably just means before. It actually means above. Above, so above before it. Basically, it's it's the the order is. I I think they're kind of visualizing the order from top to bottom. So supra is above the fall. Correct. The next one is sub or infra, which is below. Right. right. So, so if you think of like. 
Um, if you think of like ultraviolet, ultra and super are probably close synonyms. So ultraviolet is above violet on the light spectrum and infrared is below red on the light spectrum. Right. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's the way at least I understand it. So even there in some of the naming, there's a, oh, there, we're trying to move away from, they could have just said pre or post. Right. So obviously we're trying to move away from that whole temporal continuum, but yeah. So super meaning like, as far as I understand it, like above in lapsus meaning fall. Yeah. Yeah. We were so good. Yeah. Like a lapse of judgment. I think it's probably, probably more related to sin, but we're talking about like the fall in terms of the fall, the decree to allow mankind to fall into sin. Right. Now it's important just to underscore, we're not talking about the actual event of the fall because obviously all of these decrees take place temporally before the events of the fall. But we're talking about in God's mind and his decision-making process, which is already ridiculously off base in terms of reality because God doesn't make decisions. Um, he doesn't deliberate. But in terms of the, the order that God has to think through these things in the way that we have to conceive it, we're talking about superlapsarianism, meaning that the decree to elect and reprobate people um, comes prior to logically the decree to allow the fall. And so the other view, as I said, infra or sublapsarianism, we're going to stick with infra because it's easier to say compared with supra, but sublapsarianism is another name for it is, um, the idea that the decree to re- uh, reprobate and elect comes after or posterior to the decree to allow the fall. Right on. And, and here's what these positions, at least as I understand it, would hold in common. And that might be a good place to start is first, they're both going to hold that God is not the author of sin. And that scripture Correct. is the only source of our knowledge on God's decree here. The, and also that man's fall and punishment is not merely the object of God's foreknowledge, but is of his decree and foreordination. Right. And it, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And th- this is kind of a particularly reformed kind of in internal debate. Yeah, this is so, in the family. Right. So when you're talking like about Arminianism, the idea that God decree really decrees any of this is just it doesn't make sense in that system. He he looks forward in time and sees that it's the case, but he doesn't decree the fall. He doesn't decree election and reprobation in the same kind of sense. Um, Lutherans would kind of look at you and be like, why are you trying to figure out something like this? You're trying to press into mystery too much. Um so and and the Catholics and the Orthodox kind of take the same take that this is really not something that we need to talk about. Um, so it's important if you're talking with non-reform people and you get into these kinds of discussions that this is really, like I said, kind of an internal reform discussion. But it does have some interesting outworkings, which I think we're going to get to. And the reason why I want to speak about it is what does it say about God and His character, and how does it give us something that kind of pushes into our lives? and how we live and breathe and behave and all that kind of good stuff, right? Right. Yeah, and and I think um, the other theological camps, Lutheranism, or, you know, Arminianism, I almost said Arianism, which isn't a Christian Ooh. camp, um, <laughs> but, you know, Arminianism, Roman Catholic, the other camps fall into something that probably looks a lot like infralapsarianism. Um, the difference is on both supra and infralapsarianism, God is not reacting to anything. 
So it's, it's not the case that God sees what's going to happen and then has to formulate a plan where on Arminianism, Lutheranism, they would say like, well, yeah, of course, God, whatever we might talk about a decree, of course, God's decree to save comes after the fall, because that's kind of his response to the fall is to choose to save. Um, but the reform, both of these positions are saying, no, neither, neither of these is reactive. God is always positively intending to accomplish his, accomplish his will. Um, there's there's no such thing as plan plan A and plan B. It's right. it's just plan A. It's just the plan that God has. And when we're talking about these distinctions, we're just trying to work out. All right, so what exactly was God decreeing in the decree of reprobation and election? Um, and that that is what we're going to find is the real difference. Is what is the decree of reprobation and election? What is the decree of the fall? Right. Exactly. And this is one of those things that I think even good reform people sometimes get tripped up about just a little bit, or they, they think they know what they really feel are rooted in. And, you know, when I think about this, as we've talked about this, one of the questions that always comes to my mind that just summarizes it succinctly for me is basically does the decree of election and reprobation consider men as fallen or as unfallen? Right. So the question is whether election precedes or follows the fall. So, as you've kind of like come into reform theology, have you always been on one side or the other on this? Is this something that you've kind of grown through time to understand in different ways? Or have you yeah. had a view and then been like, this is the view from the beginning? Yeah. I think most people, when they come into reform theology, um, there's a certain kind of, um, theological sexiness to, um, superlapsarianism. And what I mean by that is, is it seems like this is what the real Calvinists must believe. Right. Um, and, and so I think most people coming into reform theology, they think that that's the right answer. And so they kind of land there by default. Um, that's not to say that like, oh yeah, well when you, once you mature, you move on to something else. There are plenty of good, godly, well-thought, mature Christians who hold a superlapsarian view. There are plenty of good, godly, mature Christians who hold an infralapsarian view. What I mean by that is this is kind of the position people hold before they've really, really thought through the issues. Um, and so then they kind of think through it and then they land on one side or another. Um, I started out as a superlapsarian and we'll, we'll talk a little bit, I think later about, you know, how I came through this. I ended up in where I am now is I'm an infralapsarianism or an infralapsarian. Um, and you know, I think this is a discussion that can generate a lot of heat because sometimes people don't understand the arguments um, a lot of times people are agreeing and they don't realize it. And a lot of times people don't realize what their position actually means. Does that make sense? Yeah. I find with reform theology, there is this network effect, like many other things in life, like technology or other social circles. And we want to believe what it seems like the group holds the most firm. And so of course with Calvinism or, you know, kind of reform theology writ large, that is putting basically the sovereignty of God ahead of almost everything else, like putting it supra almost everything. And so I think when I start to really want to understand what the Bible said and what Reformed theology taught, I guess I just assumed that I was supra without knowing the name. In other words, I, I had those tendencies because I felt the best thing I could do was make sure that God's sovereignty was honored above all other things, Right. kind of without really processing that when we speak about God's sovereignty, it's not an abstraction. Like God is truly sovereign, but the sovereignty is not exercised in an arbitrary way. So just like right. you said, when I was hit with this idea of superlapsarianism and the sovereignty of God, and 
at the same time, the simplicity of God, it occurred to me that it is sovereignty that God exercise is in harmony with his other attributes, especially his justice, holiness, and wisdom. So that's probably getting a little bit ahead, but I'm with you. I was, I struggled through that because I thought, well, this is what we believe. This is what we should believe. And sometimes it, we go in that direction because this is the view that pushes even most against kind of our human understanding and human will. So right. we think, well, this makes sense because it's the way that I wouldn't do it. So <laughs> God must've done it this way. Yeah. And I think too, um, at least for me, I went to a Lutheran church, but it really was kind of just a general Arminianism with like some Lutheran sprinklings on the top. Really? Yeah. And so, um, you know, I really did come from a church that held the idea of like salvation is God's plan B. And so when I became a, you know, when I kind of started to come into reform theology and I started to read a little bit about superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, and I didn't understand the logical aspect of it, that this wasn't a chronological thing. Infralapsarianism at first sounds like salvation is, is plan B. Like the fall is, is happens right. and then God reacts to it. Right. Exactly. And so I think a lot of Calvinists you know, new Calvinists come into this, not new Calvinists, the movement, new Calvinists, as in people who are new to Calvinism, they come into this and they go, well, I don't want a God of the plan B. And so I'm going to go with superlapsarianism because that's the one where God, you know, the plan was the plan from, from eternity past. That's not the case. Both of them are, are the plan was the plan from the eternity past. It's just a matter of what the plan is. Right. Exactly. So I want to read um, a little quote from Bavink, and then I think we can sort of talk about the, some of the nitty gritty of the different positions. Um, this is from volume two of reform dogmatics, um, starting on page 383, uh, one word on 383 and then it crossed over 384. It says still, it is the characteristic for the infralapsarian position that the decree of creation in the fall precedes that of election and reprobation. Superlapsarianism, by contrast, so expanded predestination that it includes the decree of creation and the fall, which are then considered as means leading to an ultimate end, the eternal state of rational creatures. So that's, that's, that's the crux of the difference. Right. The, the difference plays out in terms of like what comes first, what comes second. But the crux of the difference, and, and this is what caused me to change my position, is that in superlapsarianism, the fall and creation are means to an end. In, um, in infralapsarianism, creation and the fall, creation not so much, but the fall is something that God purposes but it's not there as a means to the end of reprobating people. Okay. So um, I came on this um, when I was in seminary, so not even that long ago. Um, I took a class called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. And so, you know, I was kind of like the class, the class's most Calvinist guy. And so I wasn't allowed, my, my professor said I wasn't allowed to write my biography paper on Calvin. I had to write it on someone else. So I was like, well, what's the closest I can get to Calvin? So I'll write it on Beza. And so I go and I start researching Beza and I'm reading Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva. I'm reading Beza's work on the, the decrees of God. And what I'm starting to realize is that for Beza, what happens is God decides 
in eternity past that he wants to have some people who are his people and some people who are not his people. And so by definition, what that means is some people go to heaven to be with God and some people go to hell to be under God's wrath and judgment and be tormented and tortured. Good and just not making, you know, obviously not making statements about the negative aspect of that. But for Beza, what happens is now God has decided some people need to go to hell, but he needs to be justified in his act of sending them to hell. And so God basically says, well, how do I make it so I'm justified in or in sending people to hell? And he says, I know I'll decree the fall so they sin and I can rightly pour out my wrath on them. So that's to me, that was kind of a scary realization, right? Because that is not the God that I read about in the Bible. Um, that was, I, I actually had kind of like a sick feeling because of all of the time that I was teaching people that the decree of reprobation comes before the fall. That's just what Calvinism is. And then there was this like realization that like, oh my goodness, like maybe that actually wasn't what the Bible teaches. Um, does that, does that, did you have anything kind of similar to that experience? Have you encountered that before? So I can get down with what you're saying there. I have never really thought about it in terms of what you said at first. I mean, the outworking always is that basically the fall gives God an excuse to do the thing that he wanted to do supposedly from the beginning. Right. I mean, in point of fact, isn't that kind of like the straw man or caricature that sometimes the Armenian objection sets up that God simply creates some men in order to just damn them? That That's... Right. The argument they use. Um, It is. And yeah, go ahead. So that's what's interesting to me because, again, I see like the strength of the superlapsarianism perspective is just that it wants to emphasize that idea of discrimination. But I think in my own study of it, I just found that it was pushing that idea into the whole of God's dealings with men and it was pushing too far. So it was overemphasizing this idea that it was not merely some members of the human race who were objects of the decree to create, but it was all mankind with the same nature. And it was not merely some men, but the entire race, which is permitted to fall. So once I started to think about sin necessarily as precedent, not just in thought, but, or an abstract idea, but it was the concrete instance of discrimination that was in question. That was the necessary precedent was sin. I ended up basically in the same place. I think you did, which was, is this the God that's described throughout the whole council of the scriptures. And I I couldn't reconcile those two. Yeah. So just to speak kind of in defense of the superlapsarian view for a minute, remember when we talked about going to the store to buy the eggs, to get the cake or to make the cake, the last thing in the sequence was the first thing logically. Right. And so the, the superlapsarian position relies on that same kind of mechanism to say, well, what's the last thing? What's the ultimate goal that God has? And for them, the ultimate goal is for God to be glorified by um, the salvation of a people, or let's not say salvation, by the election of a people who would be his people for all eternity and the reprobation of a people who would be apart from him for all eternity. That's the ultimate goal that God has in front of him. And so just like the ultimate goal in the example earlier is to make the cake, you have to go to the store and get the eggs. So in the same way, they're kind of starting with that ultimate goal and working backwards and then saying, all right, so the reverse order of the, of the goal is the logical order of the decrees. So election comes first and then the equivalent of going, of getting the eggs is okay. So election 
creation, the fall. Um, there's some strength to that in terms of that's how logical ordering usually works. You have to start with the goal and that tells you what your, your logically prior logical priority is. Um, but then you have to wrestle with the Bible. And I think for me, that's where the, the position starts to fall a little bit of a little bit flat. Right. I agree with that. I mean, what we're saying here is that we've got all kinds of people who are processing this, who are far smarter than me who are convinced that the most important thing, again, is that we hold God's sovereignty high. And that, again, we're trying to get the same place in a way by saying that God has full authority, full autonomy to decree what he desires, that there is always and forever will be only one plan for all of creation, and that logically there is a place then for this view because it gets to that end point, like you said, kind of by working backwards. Right. And I think, um, you know, I want to be, I want to be generous in how I say this, but I I guess there's no real way for me to be generous in this is I think that the superlapsarian position in its strongest form really does present God as the monster that the Arminians say all Calvinists believe. Right. I agree with that. I agree with that. And there are probably, I mean, I, I kind of joked before we started that I was going to tick off a lot of Presbyterians. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is written in such a way that superlapsarians could sign on to it. It was self-consciously written that way. The initial drafting of it was an infralapsarian document. And so they had to um, adjust the language in order to accommodate some of the superlapsarian people who were on on the um, Westminster Assembly. So, you know, the the text, um, I'll try to find the specific um, part here, but the text talks about electing to save from sin. Um, so here it's um, chapter three, verse, not verse, chapter three, article six. Um, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by eternal and f- and most free purpose of will ordained all the means thereunto. So that's super lapsarians. We go, great. Yeah. He appointed them to glory and then they foreordained the means. But then it says, wherefore they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ are effectually called into faith by his working in his spirit. And so the way that this is phrased is he's considering people as he's decreeing to save them and decreeing the means he's considering them as having been fallen in Adam. And so in, in that very sentence, the concept of the fall is already present. And so that means it's necessarily logically prior. God's all, right. if you want to put it in kind of this crass way, God's already thinking about the fall when he decides to elect some exactly. to salvation. Exactly. Because it doesn't make sense to elect some to salvation if they don't need to be saved. And what do they need to be saved from? Exactly. From their sin in the fall. Right. That was a necessary precedent, again, to kind of speak in a, in a strange way. And in right. fact, if you push out on kind of supra-lapsarianism, even, even more than that, and I hesitate to say this because it's not going to be super charitable, but you end up with the weird schema of like double predestination, which right. leaves you with a sense that God is some kind of capricious deity whose sovereign decrees manifest divine tyranny. And that right. is a criticism, of course, that's levied against Calvinism or form theology in all its various manifestations. Even if people are not in that camp, there's some, that's just one of the, the kind of low hanging fruit that people go to and say, well, this is the kind of monster God that you believe in. Even when that's not what we're saying here, there's still a lot of graciousness that strikes me 
in what you just read and the key words were right. there being in the fall. Right. Yeah. And then just moving on to article seven, which is the talks about the decree of reprobation. It says the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creature to pass by. Here's the money shot and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious grace. So God cannot, in terms of logical priority, he cannot be declaring or he cannot be ordaining them to wrath for their sin unless he's already thinking about the fact that they have sinned. So the fall in God's mind, if we want to talk in this accommodated fashion, the fall in God's mind is already in view when he's decreeing to elect and reprobate. Exactly. And that's something God has given us an understanding of logic. That's something that he's created. So when we're processing, right. processing this in this way, it makes it comports with the scripture and it makes sense logically that we would say if there is no need for a savior, then there's no need for this plan, except if God wants to arbitrarily choose people to be with him and people to suffer punishment under his wrath. That right. would be or could be his prerogative, but that's not the grand arc or the scope that we see in the scriptures. We need a great savior. And what an amazing right. thing that God has essentially, I, there's no good language, essentially looked ahead, so to speak, and said, with this in mind, from the very beginning, I am providing a way. But it almost removes from God this blessed worthiness that we give him by saying he's not just a great creator, he is a great savior. Don't, right. don't you think? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when we talk about this, like I said, this is an area where it can get a little bit heated. But I think when we talk about this, we just sort of instinctively have this desire to talk about um, God electing to save, right? He's electing to save us, not just to, he's electing us for salvation, not just electing us to be his people. Right. Because at the end of the day, if all that election was, if, if election as the end goal was election to be God's people, then the fall is not necessary for us to be God's people. It's necessary for people to be under his wrath. So if he's electing to that, then the fall is necessary. But if, if he's saying, all right, well, I'm going to have some people that are my own and some people that are not my own. And now I need a reason for these people to be condemned. So I'm going to decree the fall. There's no good reason to decree the fall of the elect in addition to the fall of the reprobate. So that's a, a little flaw, but there's this concept that gets tossed around um, in um, reform circles called uh, equal ultimacy. And what equal ultimacy is, more or less, is it's like the most extreme version of double predestination you can get. And hands down across the board, every reformed thinker that I've run into argues that equal ultimacy is not just wrong, but borderline heresy. And what equal ultimacy says is that God is as active in bringing about the salvation of the elect as he is in bringing about the damnation of the reprobate. Right. And so... Just as he causes us to be restored, regenerated, and to walk in new life, and including walking in good works, he causes in an active sense, in a way that's equally ultimate, that's parallel to what he does in the elect, he causes them to sin. Now, that has to, that's having to do with um, the temporal outflowings of God's work. But if you push this back into the decrees, 
Well, all of a sudden you've got a sort of equal ultimacy in the decrees. You've got the decree to elect is not distinct or separate or um, different from the decree to reprobate because we're not talking about what God does for the elect and what God doesn't do for the reprobate. What we're talking about, God is taking this people and arbitrarily choosing them. And he's taking this people and arbitrarily not uh, choosing, not them. It's not even that he's not choosing them. He's, he's actively choosing to condemn them for no reason. There's no lot, nothing logically prior. So there can be no reason why God is choosing to condemn them. Then that's the key to the position. That's the definition of the position. That that goes back to, it's just a positive, positive schema of predestination, which is essentially double predestination, which has its own problems. Well, and we have to be careful when we talk about double predestination because. Well, I mean, double, double active. Right. Like what you're saying there. Proactive. Yeah. So there's double predestination in an, an Orthodox reform sense that God, God doesn't, it's not like God chooses the elect and then doesn't do anything in relation to the reprobate. But the the non-symmetrical version of double predestination is that God actively chooses the elect and he passes by the reprobate. He passes right. over them, not in the sense of the Passover. <laughs> he passes over us in a different way, but he passes by them in terms of any sort of positive um, salvific act. The, the equal ultimacy or the symmetrical double predestination is where he's actively bringing about the, the damnation of the reprobate. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. When I'm referring to that, I'm not necessarily saying we're talking about binary decision where by choosing right. one, of course, you automatically say that you've not chosen the other. We're talking about something that's very distinct and which is basically a double choice. And then there's an right. active will carried out against both to affirm that choice. Right. And so I've never I've never seen that in writing connected to superlapsarianism. But I would be interested, maybe if we have some superlapsarian um, listeners, I would be interested to hear how that doesn't result in a double active predestination or a double active equal ultimacy in the decrees itself. Um, on the superlapsarian position, because I, I can't reason out how it would not. And maybe that's because I'm an infralapsarian, and so I'm not thinking in that framework, but it would be really interesting to me if we had somebody who could kind of explain how it doesn't result in that. Well, one of the things that was informative for me was when I was thinking this over and moving through all of the confessions, trying to find out what was said on in this particular way, I couldn't find really, truly any reform confession that taught the superlapsarian view explicitly. Um, but yeah. on the other hand, there were a considerable number that do explicitly teach the infralapsarian view, even just with what you re- you read there. There's a lot there in the language that's very specific that leads toward the infra perspective and actually right. bends away toward the super perspective. So if anybody has anything there that they feel very strongly that one of the confessions really speaks to that, I'd be happy to look at it because... I thought it was very telling in a way that it was absent. And and for that matter, this is what's so weird about this view to me, is that I think around the kind of the Calvinist network, not there's probably an actual network of Calvinists. <laughs> I mean, like generally speaking, like this ephemeral group of people. Again, we have right. this feeling, this proclivity to want to hold up sovereignty. And so therefore we say, this seems like this is the way that we should go. Like I can't put my finger on it, but I know about other terms and I know about how sovereignty impacts other things that I believe. So I'm just going to hang my hat on this. But what's funny is I, it's not really taught or widely held, I think, among um, a lot of reform groups. I mean, do you disagree with that? 
No, and and that's what's interesting is, um, you know, I can't think of a single big name in terms of Reformed theology that I know of that explicitly holds a superlapsarian view. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, me too. Um, but I don't know of any modern contemporary theologians who would argue for a superlapsarian view. So I think that that's right on, that the perception is that this is the real cabinist view. But if you actually were to conduct a survey of modern Reformed theologians or modern Reformed pastors, I think that the infralapsarian view would, by and large, above and beyond, be the majority view. That's what I'm thinking. And that's why I really think what you recommended in terms of trying to break this down, be really diligent and thoughtful about the logical progression. I think once you start to process it in that way and challenge yourself to go into the scriptures, look at the confessions, you're, you're going to realize, I would think for the most part, that there are a lot more dangerous tendencies with the super view, supra view than there are with the infra view. And where there are a lot of characterizations or caricatures that come out of God being essentially a tyrannical monster because of this double choice that essentially is above the fall. And that that's where I really, like I said before, got super hung up because I could not kind of parse that out and have it fit with the scriptures. Because to me, the scriptures are like practically infralapsarian. Right. I mean, I, I, yeah. do you have anything in mind for the scriptures that you think of that kind of well, marry with I this? Mean, I think the difficulty, and this is where I think some of our Lutheran friends that say like, well, you're going beyond the scriptures. Some of them actually have a point. Sure. Is that the, the scriptures by and large are talking about the temporal sequencing of things. And so we can look at them. And of course the decree, um, God's decision to permit the fall comes before the salvation of the elect comes before the fall. Um, the fall comes before reprobation. So, or the fall comes before redemption. And so we look at that and some people say, well, there's superlapsarian or there's infralapsarianism. The fall comes before redemption. But then people look at it and go, well, no, in the Bible, God decides to um, elect before the fall. But again, the, the Bible's not talking in these logical categories. It's talking in temporal categories. Um, so I think we have to be really cautious because when we look at the scriptures, we just have to make sure we're reading them for what they are. So we, we have to extrapolate, right? That's what, that's what we're saying is God gave us logic. Um, all of the reformed bodies would agree that we are authorized to use logic to derive good and necessary consequences from scripture. And those good and necessary consequences um, are just as authoritative as the explicit things, even if maybe we need to hold them a little bit looser because um we're more likely to make a mistake on the good and necessary logic than we are on the things that are like really explicit right, in scripture. Exactly. But that being said, I think that the good and necessary consequences of scripture point us to an infralapsarian position. I think so too. Let me give you, let me throw an example at you and you tell me what you think about this, because sure. when I'm thinking about these views, I'm considering that the scripture seems to make it very clear that the elect and the non-elect are regarded as being originally in a common state of misery. So suffering mm -hmm. and death are uniformly represented as the wages of sin, right? So when I read something even like John 15, 19, I'm wondering if we can draw some good and necessary consequence out of that 
bad boy. So that's where Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So even like some of that language, I think though he's he's speaking to specific times, specific people, specific instance, even there I find that the language seems to kind of speak to this being regarded in a common state of misery. And therefore, see, this is where it gets tricky because the temporal piece, but we're seeing like this, this logical connection between sin being the necessary precedent that in a way requires the savior and that he is from a common pool, so to speak, after the need for rescue coming in and bringing forth his will. I'm trying to be super, super cautious of the language because it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is what ultimately convinced me, is that the scriptures everywhere present present a situation where God is, where a savior is necessary because of sin. What superlapsarianism would have you to believe is that sin is necessary because of a savior. Right. Yeah. So, it's creating a problem to find a solution, basically. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly. And that's what Bovink's quote says: is that superlapsarianism extends predestination so that creation and the fall are a means to the end of the ultimate state of the rational creature. And so, God in in, in superlapsarianism. The savior is the ultimate end. God wants to be glorified by saving a people. And so he has to decree then to create a people and then decree a situation from which to save them. To me, that's just crazy. I mean, it's just crazy because that's just not the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible is that a savior is necessary because of sin, not the converse. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And even beyond that, I don't think we have to try to protect or uphold or shield God's sovereignty by making it seem like he needed to make that call at in that at that particular logical state. Right. I think that's pushing too far and trying to read into scripture things that certainly aren't there. I don't think we have to worry about that. Right. And this is so I've got this theory and I don't know how I would how I would play this theory out, like how I would test and validate this. But I have this theory that even the people that, like I said earlier, there are people who kind of hold superlapsarianism as, as a default and then they study and then they come out on one way or another. And I think it's pretty clear that most people come out on the infralapsarian side. Um, the people, hopefully this isn't super insulting anybody, but the people who maintain a superlapsarian position are the people that I found don't really understand what they're affirming. And this is this is why I say that, is there's a view called modified superlapsarianism, and it was um, advocated by a guy named Robert Raymond. And I'm reading this from um, the Alpha and Omega ministry pages, James White's page. And they give this chart of the summary of the orders of decrees. So they have kind of the standard superlapsarian, infralapsarianism. They include an Arminian view and an Almerillian view. That doesn't matter for this conversation. But then they include Raymond's modified view. And I want you to listen to this. So it says, first, elect some sinful men, reprobate the rest. Two, apply redemptive benefits to the elect. Three, provide salvation for the elect. Four, permit the fall. Five, create. Well, you know what we call that? We call it infralapsarianism. Right. Because you you can't have sinful men to elect from unless sin is already in view. So even the, even the superlapsarians 
seem to, and this is my theory, they seem to understand instinctively that infralapsarianism is the position that the Bible presents, but there's some motivating factor that they want to retain the fall as like one of the last things that God permits. And I think it's to try to avoid any sort of idea that God is somehow reacting to the fall. Exactly. Um, I think so too. I think the fall is such a watershed event in the Bible um, and it's such a watershed impact moment in our minds that we assume anything happening after the fall has to, in some sense, be reactive to it. Um, I just don't. That's just not biblically the case. It doesn't have to. There's nothing that makes that the case. But I think that's the way it goes. And so this modified superlapsarianism thing is this impulse to put the fall at the end, basically, but still, still somehow have sin in picture. And the other thing is. How can you be talking about electing sinful men or electing any men if the call the the decree to create is the last thing in your order? Well, he obviously is decreed to create if he's decreeing to elect some men because men are creatures. So I just think this is such a dicey thing. People tend to, if you were to just ask somebody, all right, from what you know about the God of the Bible. What's the first thing that he decided to do? Well, he decided to create. Okay, what's the second thing? Well, he must have decided to allow the fall because, you know, that's just the way it seems like it happens. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much more we can can kind of circle around that and belabor it. It just is an interesting kind of quirk of Reformed Christianity that I'm not sure how to account for. That was a really interesting theory. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, really? I get on these theories sometimes. Well, I'm blown out. But I think it's thought-provoking. I never thought about that before. I mean, I think to kind of bring it back to why this is important and worthwhile discussing and not just an argument of really nuanced things that doesn't matter is, first, I think it reminds us that there are things here which cannot be put into into a discrete time mold. So these events right. are not in the divine mind as they are in ours by a succession of acts you know, from one to another. But it's one single act that God has at once ordained all of these things. And I think that's a stretch. Right. So it's good that if the, if the only thing that comes out of this conversation is just a reminder that that is reality. We have to look at the logical piece. We're always prone to the temporal piece and God is above temporal duration. That's valuable in and of itself. But beyond that, I think the question is how do we understand who God is and how divine simplicity and his character marry up with the decree of election and reprobation. And that both is pastoral and evangelical, like in the strictest definition of the word. Right. So I think that it's important that we kind of wrap our brains around this, if only because if, if you are, um, for lack of a better word, like, like flamboyantly reformed, if that's a term, <laughs> then somebody at some point is going to call you on this if they know enough about it. And if right. your default position is just, well, I believe God decreed it. There was only one plan and somebody's going to say, so what you're saying is that he just arbitrarily punishes some and rewards others. And we need to be able to, uh, to explain that that's not exactly what the Bible says. Right. Yeah. And, and again, you know, you said it earlier, but there's no reason that God couldn't do that. You know, right. it's not, it wouldn't have been evil for God to, um, to decide to, have some people be his people and other people not be his people. And frankly, he who it's no, there's no need for him to justify having some people be not his people. Exactly. Um, 
So the the impulse to the impulse to have the fall be the means to God's end of reprobating people. Um, what it's trying to do is it's trying to account for the fall. Even though that's not necessary, it's a fact of reality. And so it's trying to account for that. But I think the beauty of the gospel is that God saves sinners, right? The glory of God in the gospel is that God saves sinners. He chose to save sinners even when they were still his enemies. All of those phrases that we glory in as Reformed Christians presuppose that when God elected us, he was electing us as those who were his enemies. He was choosing his enemies to save. A superlapsarian, if they're understanding the theology and are being consistent, can't affirm that God in eternity past chose to save sinners. Right. That's just not that they can't do it. They want to. They 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 will, but they can't be consistently superlapsarian if they're saying that. And that's a big deal because what we're doing is we're kind of robbing God from some of the glory and value that we should ascribe to him as the one who is able to right the wrong, to bring reconciliation. But if right. you logically place him in a weird sequence, even like the modified version, that that occurs to me as like totally illogical at that point. It is. It, by the like by the definition of the word illogical, it is. Right. It as opposed to any other definition of that word, but well, I mean, like rather than just like in the colloquial sense, like it's literally defying the laws of logic yeah. to to utilize a term that isn't introduced until later in the argument. Right. E- exactly. So I always go back to Ephesians and Ephesians one, because I love this verse. This was getting this preposition was so big for me. And I've said this before, but it seems appropriate now as it ever was. And that is Ephesians one, five in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That seems like the perfect, essentially, summation of what you just said to me. This is an yeah. act of love. And when we logically sequence it in the infraview, which I think, again, is the most biblical perspective, we see that that love shines forth predominantly. It comports with the scripture and it makes a big difference for how we see Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so just let me just read. Um, I'm going to read starting in verse three and I'm going to go. Um, Let's see, where does this sentence end? Sometime at the end of Ephesians. Um, I'm going to read into verse 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what stuck out to me as I was reading this, um, when you were talking about it, is in verse seven. So acknowledging that we're talking about, Paul is talking about temporally, in him temporally, in time, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, you know, etc. Um, 
but the whole thing is talking about what God predestined us for. So he predestined us to have redemption through his blood. Right. He didn't, he didn't predestine us to some generic unity with, um, with God. Right. He predestined us to unity with the father in the son through the shed blood and the redemption of our sins and forgiveness of our trespasses. Exactly. He couldn't predestine us to forgiveness of sins if he hadn't already been considering us as sinners. And we're like, we're hammering on that point, but I talk to soup to, to proclaimed superlapsarians every day who say something like, well, yeah, of course God predestined to save us from our sins. And I'm going, you're an infralapsarian <laughs> by definite, like by definition, don't even no, know no, it. I, I hold to, to Raymond's modified superlapsarianism. Yeah. We call that infralapsarianism. Right. It's just infralapsarianism. It's not anything special. Right. I mean, it's special, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I mean, that strikes me the only reason. What, like, why could we praise his glorious grace unless it was actually undeserved merit because there was punishment that should have been meted right. out against us? So that, that must right. be in the mind of God, like we've been saying, for this to be an actual, for this to be something that we'd actually say, God, we, we bless you. We thank you. We praise you because you've been good to us. And the reason you've been good to us is because we deserved wrath. And right. from the beginning, the foundations of the world, you understood that we were going to be sinners and made a way for us. So, and, and out of yeah. that common misery, out of that common pool, so to speak, chose logically at that point. Yeah. Well, I think that probably, I mean, we could circle this point for the rest of the evening um, because you really can't land it hard enough. Right, I, don't think. I like, agree. This is the gospel. And it matters. Like, you can't land the gospel hard enough. And it absolutely matters. Um, because with all due respect to the superlapsarians, I, like I said, I think that if you follow superlapsarianism out to its logical conclusions, then God is the monster that the Arminians accuse Calvinists exactly. of believing in. And that's not the God that Calvinists believe in. So it's, it's important and it really matters. And it does seem esoteric and kind of abstract, but it really plays into our day-to-day understanding of who God is and what God purposed to do in eternity past. And it's important. It's crazy important. It, it shapes us. I think whether we realize it or not, it really shapes our understanding of what it means to be sons and daughters of the King. And to understand what God's love means in all of its depth and breadth, it really makes a difference. And again, if you don't believe us, I think the answer, the question you've got to answer once you turn this off or throw your phone across the room because you're tired of listening to us is whether election and reprobation precedes or follows the fall. You've got to answer that question for yourself. Yep. And then you've got to think about, well, once I come to my answer... Tease it out, pull out that thread and see where it leads you and see if that yes. fits with the scriptures. Absolutely. So Jesse, if someone were a really angry superlapsarian that wanted to <laughs> communicate that to us, what is that magic phone number that they can call and leave us a voicemail? Um, the funny thing is we have no contact information, so you'll just have to keep that to yourself. <laughs> Actually, Seriously, you can call us and we hope that you will. And leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. So seriously, leave us a voicemail. Let us know your perspective so that we can hear. And again, the reason why we do this podcast is because we like talking to each other, but we also yeah. like bringing in all kinds of voices 
from across the spectrum, people who are listening, who are really trying to strive after understanding God better and loving him more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that wraps it up. Um, hopefully we'll hear for some people. Hopefully we'll get some uh, voicemails on the air soon. But until we do, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.